Thank you. You know, this might be the first time I have ever had the sermon text sung uh, just before the the, uh, sermon, so that's pretty exciting. Uh, Good morning, First Baptist. It is an honor and a privilege to be with you this morning. My name is Jeremy Hall, and I am very blessed to call your pastor, David, a a friend. He's a good man and an excellent minister. And and a benefit of all the churches streaming, you know, we we pastor friends. We don't get to visit each other's churches. We're busy. We get to actually listen to each other preach now. He's a good preacher, too. (laughs) Talented, thoughtful, energetic. Y'all are lucky to have him and his wonderful family here in Carrollton. So congratulations. Today's text was given to me by Pastor Hughes, perhaps because he knows me well enough not to leave me to my own devices. And uh, he's given me this uh, passage to kick off a sermon series in Philippians with a a specific focus on the theme of gratitude. So we're going to try to lock into that today. And, And Philippians is a fascinating place to go for the subject, too. Paul writes this letter to his friends at the church in Philippi, And he writes to them about joy and gratitude from prison. Paul is writing a letter about joy from death row and a letter about gratitude while chained to a wall. He'll talk about it. He says, my chains are part of the testimony. That's a really compelling image. And David didn't know this when he gave me this passage. Philippians 1 is probably one of my all-time favorite chapters in the Bible. I think I've taught and preached more out of Philippians 1 than anywhere else in the scriptures. So I am fired up this morning to share from this passage, and it was really hard to, you know, narrow it down. I've probably got eight to ten hours of content on these 13 verses, so I figured I'd just do about four of those hours with y'all this morning, and we'll see how it goes. So Paul opens this book, this letter, with a prayer. You heard it uh, wonderfully read by Allie. Thank you. And then, gosh, beautifully sung by the choir. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Tyler and our accompanists and other worship leaders. Really a beautiful service. So I want to take us back to that passage and look at verses seven and eight. Really lock in there for a few minutes because I think that's the heart of this passage. It's the key the key to joy on death row, the key to gratitude while chained to a wall. He writes, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. I can testify how I long for all of you in the affections of Christ Jesus. God can testify So Paul keeps using this phrase in this prayer. Y'all might have noticed it. He says, all of you or y'all, like eight times in the 11 verses we just read. Paul loves these people. He's thankful for these people. He believes that God is up to something in that church. He, He knows them. He really knows them. And he says he misses these people and he longs to be with them. But there's this part that I find really striking about this little prayer. Paul says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you. All of them? Like all of them, all of them? 
Paul, you know you're talking to a church, right? I don't know if y'all have ever been to a church before, but um, I've, been, I've been a pastor for over 10 years, and I'll admit, in some churches, not this one, in some churches, there are some people, none of them are here, that are hard to love. Don't look at them. <laughs> Do not, don't move a muscle. In some churches, there are people who are hard to love. And like I said, none of y'all have ever experienced that. But church can be difficult. And church is full of difficult people. Contrarians, the perpetually negative. There's always someone who disagrees with us about what the church should be doing, where the church should be going, how the finances should be handled. There's always something, right? The church is full of people who, and then it gets personal, who disagree with us as the rest of the church, there's people who look different, who dress different, who talk different, who think different, who believe different, who maybe they pray or live different, maybe they even vote different. Yikes. There are people in church that are hard to love. Do not look at them. Paul knows these people. Like he really, he really knows them. And he can still talk about them like this. He can still say, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you. How does he do this? The next verse is the key. It's, I think Paul does this on purpose, puts it right there. Because I think he knows we're going to say, all of them? Like, you know, he's here still, right? Uh, Paul puts this next line there to answer that question. God can testify that I love all of you, that I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. If you don't believe me that I love all of you, just go ask God. Paul's very confident of himself. God will tell you he knows. And it's such nice language, right? It's very churchy. It's lovely. It's flowerly. I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's so nice. But uh, I want to focus here for a second because there's something strange happening in the translation from the Greek to the English. And I'll show you what I mean. The NIV that we've been reading today says, I long for you with the affections of Christ. But the NLT says, I long for you with the tender compassion of Christ. The American Standard says, with the mercy of Christ. The Good News says, the heart of Christ. The LSV says, the leanings and yearnings of Christ. And when uh, Lamasa translated this verse, he renders it the love of Christ. There's something strange happening here to give us so much diversity. The Greek word that's causing all of this trouble is the word splagnon. That's a fun word. If you're paying attention to the preacher, say splagnon. You're all Greek scholars now. It's wonderful. As you've seen, this word is hard to translate. It, it often translates in our English Bibles as heart or compassion or love, or like in today's passage, it says affection. But none of those are exactly right. You see, splagnon, it's a beautiful word. It's such a lovely language. Splagnon, it's a technical term. It's a medical term. You see, splagnon, it means intestines, entrails, or bowels. Ugh. And the word shows up 11 times in the New Testament. And, and it's used in a physiological sense, like to talk about sickness or injury. So we know that the writers know what this word is. They know how it works, but they're using it in a different way here in several other places. Let me show you what I mean. 
Zechariah, in the first chapter of Luke, sings a song on the birth of his son, John the Baptist. You might have heard of him. He sings of God's love and salvation, and he declares, salvation is on its way because of the bowels of God. That's not how we read it um, at Advent. It usually says mercy when we light our Advent candles. 2 Corinthians 6.12, Paul professes his love for the church at Corinth. He says, I have not withheld my bowels from you. Kind of wish you would, Paul. Uh, 1 John 3.17 says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but shuts up their bowels to them, how can the love of God be in that person? In his letter to Philemon, Paul says that Philemon has brought great joy in that his ministry refreshes the bowels of the people of God. And if you look at today's passage in the good old King James, you would see how greatly I long for all of you with the bowels of Christ Jesus. What is going on here? This is very strange, right? The, the bowels of God, the bowels of the people, the bowels of Christ. You never thought you'd heard the word bowels so much in a church service before. Nobody's saying, I love you with the bowels of Christ in their thank you cards. No one's going to cross stitch this on a pillow. Open your bowels to your neighbor. That doesn't go on a throw pillow at grandma's house. Ever seen a precious moments figurine labeled, you refresh the bowels of the people? Probably not. So what, what's going on here? Intestines, entrails, bowels, guts. Now you hear that and it sounds, it sounds really weird, right? A little confusing, maybe a little gross. But check this out. You know exactly what I mean if I say the phrase gut reaction, right? I decided to go with my gut. I felt it in my gut, right? You know what this means. This makes sense. It's something like instinct, something like intuition. To know something in your gut is that feeling when just the core of who you are knows something. When you know something deep down inside of you, at your core, before you even have to think about it, you know it in your gut. This is the same sort of way that I think Paul and the other New Testament writers are using this word splagnon in passages like today's. Paul can't. Paul can't love all of these people. But Jesus can. Paul's gut reaction to all these people may not be love, but Jesus' gut reaction to them is. So how can Paul say this? How can Paul say that he loves all of them? Well, Paul has experienced a transplant. Paul's heart has been swapped for Jesus's. Paul's affections have been swapped for the affections of Christ. Paul's compassion has been swapped out for Jesus's. Paul's yearnings have been swapped for Jesus. Paul's gut has been transplanted with Jesus's gut. Maybe this is what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 2 when he writes, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul can't love all these people, but Jesus living in Paul can. When we step into this new life, the, the kind of life being offered by Jesus, we don't just ask Jesus into our hearts. That's nice churchy language again. We, we ask him into our guts 
Two, the Christian life is about allowing Jesus to transform our identity, to be so conformed to Christ that we can act instinctively out of love. To allow Jesus not only to save our soul, but to save our gut. To allow Jesus to replace your instincts with his, our intuition with his, our gut with his. And and when we start to interact with the world through the instincts of Jesus, that'll change everything. That's going to change the way we see people. Our mindsets towards others will be renewed as we are transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. Paul can love everyone in the Philippian church because he has changed his instincts. His gut reaction now matches that of Jesus. He, He now sees them through the eyes of Christ. And this has changed the way he interacts with them and indeed the world. Paul can love everyone this way because he's not judging them for who they are. But through the eyes of Christ, he's loving them for who they can be and who they are becoming. Paul sees them as Jesus does, not for their faults, not for their sins, not for their shortcomings, not for their present, but for their future. Not for who they are, but for who they are becoming in Christ. Not for what they have done, but for what God can do, has done, will do, is doing in and through them. And this is accessible to all of us as believers, as those who have the Holy Spirit in us. Part of the process of our transformation, part of the process of being recreated, part of the process of our sanctification is allowing Jesus to to retune our instincts to match his. But not only will this change the way you see others, it'll change the way you see yourself too. Because there's two competing narratives out there about our identity. There's the story that the world tells about us. The world says that we're broken, that we're not good enough, that we're abandoned, that we're isolated, that we're sinful, that we're lost. But God is telling a different story about us. That we are healed, that we are loved, that we are cherished, that we are chosen and adopted, that we're wanted. God has given us a new identity as God's own children. The world wants to remind us that we are sinners, but in Christ we have a new identity as saints. Now, now saint is an interesting term. Likely when you hear the word saint, you're thinking something a little Catholic. The Catholic Church has monopolized the Christian imagination around the term saint with their collection of saints, St. Augustine, St. Francis, St. Peter, so on and so forth. And the, the idea behind the Catholic saints is that these are believers who have died and who we can confirm are in the presence of God in heaven rather than working out their perfection in purgatory. So that's the idea there. You don't pray to a saint. You ask a saint to pray for you because you know they're right there with God. Yeah? Like, you, you know, if you really need... Someone to pray for you, you know which grandmother to call, because you know which one's always with Jesus. Uh, that's, that's sort of that idea there. But uh, in contrast, when we see the word saint in the New Testament, the word they're using is something closer to holy ones, those who have been set apart for a specific purpose. The first Christians who wrote the sermons and the letters that became the New Testament use this term constantly. 
to talk about the church, those who have said yes to Jesus, that those who have accepted the truth of the gospel and joined God in the work of reconciling the whole creation to God's health have gained a new identity along with a new purpose. When we allow Jesus into our life, into our hearts, into our guts, we transition from sinner to saint. And in doing so, we are united with the family of God across all of time and space. In Christ, we are united with all the saints, the whole church, past, present, future, in the work of the gospel from the first day till now, as Paul put it. This partnership, this sharing in the gospel, sharing in the church, sharing in the family of God, it unites us, it strengthens us, it empowers us. We are united in our work, in our suffering, in our joy, and in our victory. And we need each other to accomplish this, to to accomplish the work, to persevere in the testing, to live into our joy, and to believe in our victory. We need each other, the church community, the communion of saints. We need the support of the saints to do the work of the kingdom and live a Christian life. The, The passage most folks think of when they think about All Saints Day is usually Hebrews 11 and 12. I'm sure you remember this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We are empowered by our community, by the church. We, we bear each other's burdens. We share in the weight of life and faith. One of the reasons that it's so important to be in church is for the support of the saints. We are empowered by their stories from, from the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Ruth, Esther, John, Peter, Paul, the great cloud of witnesses in the scriptures to the great cloud of witnesses in this room, Sunday school teachers, choir members, ministers, deacons, those who have loved and cared for us. What a great cloud of witnesses. We are empowered by sacrifice, stories of courage and hardship, struggle and suffering, sacrifice and victory from the stories of the first martyrs in the Bible to the great missionaries of our history and the people who sacrificed and gave in Carrollton when they saw that the town needed a new church about 175 years ago. The struggles of our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, knowing their struggles helps us to persevere in our own. We are empowered by shared faith and hope. Did you know that you can borrow faith and hope? On days when you feel like you don't have enough faith, on the days when you feel like you just can't find any hope, there is someone here who will share some of theirs with you. If you can't seem to find the strength to pray, I bet you know exactly which church lady to call. If you're confused or upset or scared about something you found in the Bible, I bet you know exactly which Sunday school teacher you need to talk to. If you're feeling like there's no future, no hope, go talk to one of the young people that you saw today 
in worship leadership, sitting around the sanctuary, singing up front, they'll tell you about the future. They'll tell you there's one out there. This community of faith has enough to go around. And the secret is that we can share it with each other. This community of hope has enough hope to go around. And all you have to do is ask, tell me about your faith. Would you pray for me? Would you help me pray? I don't know what I believe about God, church, faith, Jesus, the Bible right now. Could we talk about it? We can bear each other's burdens as we share in this community sustained by faith and hope across generations. What about when it's you? When you don't feel like you're good enough, when you don't feel whole enough, when you don't feel put together enough, when you feel like you're falling apart or falling behind and you don't think you can keep going. What about when it's, when it's you who's sinned, who's messed up, who's failed, when you've missed the point or missed the mark? Where do you go when you need to be put back together? Here is a truth that must be true or nothing else the local church does matters. When you feel unloved or unlovable, there is love to spare in this communion of saints, and there is enough for you. The claim of many of the letters of the New Testament, specifically Hebrews that we just read, is that the church is on your team. The church, all caps, past, present, future. Those saints who have died, the saints that surround us today, the children that we are raising up and those who will come after them, along with God and the angels, the saints Christian brothers and sisters around the world, they want you to make it. And more specifically than that, when you feel unloved or unlovable, there is love enough for you here. Pastors and deacons who will visit you when you're sick, prayer warriors and group leaders that will support and comfort you. Families that want to be your surrogate grandparents or that brother or sister you never had. There are those here who are farther along on the journey of faith who can mentor you. There are those here who are just starting out on this journey who can share their passion and that freshness with you. The community of saints is a community of plenty. No one goes unloved in the church. Am I right? Can somebody say amen? Is that true here? I thought so. Because as the saints... We have tapped into the very heart of God. It has become our source of faith, hope, and love in the world. And now we, like Paul, have undergone a transplant. It is no longer us, but Jesus who informs the way that we must live with one another. We can be faith, hope, and love to and for each other. Because we have traded in our hearts, our love, our affections, our yearning, our intuition, our instincts, our guts for Jesus. And in doing so, we are united with the saints. Past, present, and future. We are the community of saints in the world, for the world, and for each other here today. And that's good news.